Hey everyone and welcome back to the Insightful Chatters podcast. I'm Anushka and as we come to the end of Pride Month, today we welcome a very special guest, the host of the LGBTQ STEM podcast, Dr. Myrad O'Connor. She is a university lecturer and diversity and inclusion award winner. The LGBTQ plus STEM podcast aims to discuss STEM related topics with the inclusion of the LGBTQ plus community. Thank you so much, Marad, for being here with us today. How are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing great. And I think what all of you are doing shows really great initiative, um, hard work. And you were talking about some really critical social issues that need to be talked about. So, yeah, I'm very happy to be um, chatting with you guys today. Oh, thank you so much for joining us here today, Mert. Um, Also, uh, we're going to just start off with the first question, which is, the STEM field, or in other words, science, technology, engineering, and maths field, is quite popular these days. Those who have embarked upon a journey into this field, they surely have a personal attachment with subjects like maths, chemistry, physics, etc. And so I wanted to ask, what do you personally really like about the STEM field? Yeah, so I suppose my particular area in STEM would be technology. Um, but I was a very average student in school, so I went to school here in Ireland. Um, but I I didn't like school very much. Um, and I suppose knowing what I know now as a thirty year old woman who has reached the highest possible degree in education, I know that more could have been done for me in school, um, and probably a lot more. Um, but my experience with STEM school was that if you were good at STEM subjects, you were encouraged to become a teacher or a nurse not actually work in the areas of science, technology, engineering, maths. And becoming a teacher or a nurse was seen as a good career for the smart girls. Um, and so there were the smart girls in the class and then there were the others. And I don't think that the teachers at the time knew what to do with the others, you know, mm-hmm, um, yeah. not that the other girls weren't smart, but all they knew is to focus each student towards examination. And if there was a group of girls, maybe five or six girls in the class that were really, really smart, um, I don't think they knew what to do with the other group of girls. Um, And as well as that, teachers didn't know much about STEM careers. And because they didn't know much about scientists, technologists, engineers, or mathematicians, you were kind of encouraged to stick to what the teachers knew. And what the teachers knew at the time in Ireland was, a good job was to be a teacher or a nurse, a very solid career. Um, mm-hmm. And some students went on to become wonderful teachers and wonderful nurses. But I do also feel that there was a lot of kids who missed out on that. Um, but yeah, I suppose in terms of STEM subjects, these are often seen as, I think, the hard subjects. And you would be told this by your classmates and your teachers that they were hard. And I never had much confidence in my own academic ability so I, I would listen to, to that kind of talk and I suppose I went into the mold of, yeah, I'm, you know, one of those students who's not good at the same subjects. And I do think from your first year of school, at least in my school, you were put into a box and teachers, whether consciously or, or not consciously, put you in a box of, OK, you're doing a pass in the subject um you're doing an ordinary level. You're not going to be doing examinations in the in the honours um subjects so and maybe you know 
they might have thought the student is a bit wild or a bit adventurous and they really didn't know what to do to facilitate the growth so um mm -hmm. yeah and i think they as i said they they focused really really well on the five or six girls who were getting the top marks and they didn't really know what to do with the other category but like many students um you know with regards to technology that was one of the subjects that for me it was something that i was just always interested in even from a young age and um, but at the time in ireland technology a six-week course in all the five years to do a technology and in that six weeks you know you were kind of put into a really kind of dark room you had the projector up and you were following a teacher who didn't really have an interest in technology but was teaching you about computers and it really was just awful but I suppose nowadays, you know, kids are more into coding and technology. Yeah. And there's different computer science is now an actual course for um, students in Ireland. So a lot has changed since then. But I suppose when I used to go home from school, um, I used to always go on my computer and I'd be doing, working on different, you know, Microsoft Word or paint editing or making CDs or updating the whole computer for security or and all those things were interesting to me and they were easy um mm -hmm. and i suppose my technology love didn't come from school but it came from from my home life and when i was four my parents bought me um it's called like a computers plus and it was a computer at the time and it, it was a computer especially made for for kids um and but you were able to do write letters on it you were able to play yeah. games in it and things like that so the my love for for that sort of technology as i said came from what what happened when i left school rather than inside it um but yeah i mean the the one thing about that is that i i, I do love technology i'm it's my career now um but it wasn't until i left school that i started to really value and enjoy the other sim subjects during school, did you like face um, a stigma where teachers may have told you that, um, you know, these subjects are more suitable for girls or these subjects are more suitable for boys? Was there anything, any um, stigma going on around at that time? Yeah, so definitely. Um, and so I suppose one area um, would be engineering. So engineering is a, is a man's career. Mm -hmm. um, and engineers who were women were never brought into school to, sh to to show us, you know, what they did. And and actually, yeah, like a woman could a woman could become an engineer. So that was never something any initiative like that was not happening. I know that that's happening currently at the moment. Right. Um, but uh, back in my day, it wasn't. But, you know, simple things like it, it was never talked about that women could become engineers. Even the teachers wouldn't talk about that. So. Mm -hmm. I left school thinking that, you know, engineering was for men and our assumptions were never challenged as teenagers. So, yeah, we left school having this very limiting view. And I've spoken to a lot of engineers um, and a lot of them have said that they became engineers, not from any advice at school, but because a family member was an engineer or they got advice from from a relative. So that's my experience of speaking to engineers. And I also know that as well from, from my own days, um, that you were never encouraged to be an engineer or anything like that. So 
teachers didn't realize themselves and a big thing for me when I was younger is I always believed that the person in authority knew what they were doing um Mm -hmm. and that probably came from you know my family as well I left school and even until like maybe five or six years ago I always believed if I was you know in customer service or education or something like that that the person speaking to me was in there was employed and was doing their job to the best of their ability but now I know that you know teachers nowadays don't always know you know the right thing for the student or they haven't really focused or they haven't you know educated themselves in STEM careers and what that could mean or an LGBT or things like that mm-hmm. so I think right now I'm I'm older I'm wiser and I definitely you know would love to um, and do plan on you know challenging a lot of the educational systems at the moment all right thank you so much for your insight on that we'd also like to additionally ask why do you feel it's important to speak up about homophobia in this particular field of interest specifically yeah so so there's been a lot of studies um in the area in the last number of years but there's a few statistics that probably jump out at me um 28% of LGBT people have at one point considered leaving their job mm-hmm. because of a hostile work environment or some sort of discrimination towards them. Um, in America, one in three scientists have been urged to stay in the closet in order to progress their career. And the really worrying one for me is that gay students are less likely to go to university. So, I mean, all those are very problematic and worrying um and but these are just three statistics in a long list and you know if one in three scientists are being urged to stay in the closet in order to progress their career i mean that's a huge that's a huge number um so stem have noticeably lower numbers of out people and stem subjects like science technology engineering and mathematicians seem to have low numbers of of out lgbt people but these are because of personal and environmental reasons and for me, I came out almost immediately to my boss and it wasn't something that, you know, I specifically said I am gay. I just mentioned that I had a girlfriend and he was great and the environment I was working in was great. But I also know that that's not the same for everyone. Um, but I do think that it's critical to show people that not everyone working in STEM fits the same mould. And I do hope to challenge the general public's perceptions of what science engineers, tech people and mathematicians should be like. And I think it's becoming more and more evident that embracing diversity, embracing LGBT persons in all its forms is vital for the future of innovation that the sciences and the world rely so heavily upon. So, I mean, you've worked so much with representation in STEM fields and, you know, supporting the LGBTQ plus members in workplaces. So um, considering all of your experience, taking that into consideration, what advice would you give to young LGBTQ plus members in workplaces where no one else is openly part of the LGBTQ plus community? Can coming out to their colleagues affect the position they hold in the workplace? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Um, So I do encourage STEM professionals to come out in the workplace, but I also have a caveat with that because someone should only come out if they feel comfortable doing so and if mm-hmm. they feel it's safe to do so. 
So for me, I was out to my team and work, but not out to the wider organization. So it still took me three years to come out to my organization that has about 300 people working in it. Um, And I did an interview for an LGBT STEM advocacy group and then I tweeted it and then my work retweeted it and we spoke about it after and they asked me how they could support me and they did all the right things. But I also want to show that, you know, there was three years where I wasn't ready to come out to the wider group. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. force anyone to to come out if they weren't ready. But instead, I'd say that come out when you feel you are ready. But I do know that for me to come out it it will be a motivation for someone else in my field or someone close to me. Yeah. So we've understood that um, STEM field can be competitive and we would like to hear some insight upon how exactly the LGBTQ community copes with this, um, considering that homophobia in the workplace is very commonly present and why is diversity in STEM fields so crucial and how is the LGBTQ community within the field of STEM uh, particularly impacted? Like till now you've mentioned about um, the importance of diversity and you've shared some of your experiences as well. So um, in general, how do you think the community is impacted? Yeah, so I think it's it's crucial um, because, you know, we need to challenge the heteronormative image of STEM mm-hmm. where those who are su- uh, successful are perceived to fit a rigid mold. And what I mean by that, one example is we think of STEM, we think of the straight white male scientists. So it's crucial to show that LGBT people who are interested in STEM careers, you know, that you don't need to fit this mold to be part of the community. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if 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 we can show more representation, then, you know, a young kid in school can look to STEM and say, actually, no, you know, I saw this person, they're out. I relate more to them, so I will choose to go down the career of STEM. So it's important as well to kind of for the people within STEM who are actively working in the area. It's important for the community to provide opportunities for one another. Mm-hmm. So it's important for all these advocacy groups to showcase the research and the work that these people are doing um, and to show each other and our bosses that rigor and professionalism are independent of gender and sexuality. You can still be a top scientist, you can still be out in your field and I mean it's important to continue this type of work and expand it across all areas of STEM so that people from across the intersections of our community see themselves represented. And one other kind of aspect of that is that scientists, technologists, engineers, they all design our lives. They create innovation in our countries. They inform the medicine, they inform government, they inform policy. And if these people are always straight white males, then there is a blind spot and it's limiting. And that's why it's so critical for LGBT persons um, to get out there and to work in STEM and to be able to inform science, to be able to inform technology, inform engineering um, so that we can improve the LGBT lives of, of our community. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. And we understand that the LGBTQ plus STEM podcast aims to promote the representation of the LGBTQ plus community in STEM fields. And in order to ensure that individuals from the community feel comfortable in workplaces or related institutions, what can these institutions do to show their support and let them know that they are in a safe place? 
Yeah, so I think an inclusion and diversity strategy should be implemented. Um, but once it's implemented, it should be kept up to date. And the strategy may differ depending on the type of organization or the country, but the aims should remain constant and similar. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is that the aims of the diversity and inclusion strategy that an organization will take on should provide a welcoming and inclusive environment for their staff and for mm-hmm. people visiting their organization. So in that sense, then it's important for the LGBT work colleagues, but also the non-LGBT work colleagues. Um, it's important for them to discuss with one another and it's important for the LGBT people in the community to to stand up and say, look, these are the challenges that we're facing because the non-LGBT um, equivalents may not experience this. So the strategy should aim to make each person entering the workplace feel confident, feel loved so that they can be their true self um, in that work environment. Um, and yeah, I suppose from an organizational point of view, they may choose to do a range of different things. And I suppose it's Pride Month at the moment, and that's one of, it's been the best Pride Month so far. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. events such as Pride Month, events such as LGBT STEM Day, hosting these type of events in the organization. Um, I think as well, having like a an employee-led collective group, um, and that should include LGBT and non-LGBT um, individuals. So an ally network of people in the organization is always important. So an ally is someone who mightn't necessarily be LGBT, but wants to promote and encourage um, LGBT and LGBT diversity and inclusion. And there should also be, you know, lots of training days, modules online, guidelines, gender affirmation guidelines for work colleagues. And then I think it's always important, which I think we're currently missing at the moment is, you know, Pride Month can 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 make people see, you know, it gives them the strength to come out. And during that time, I also think it's important that, you know, you have a month of promoting being gay. And I think some some colleagues may decide that, you know, they might find it difficult. It could be a trigger for something. So I think always having, you know, different support and counselling sessions and uh, different things like that. um, So someone has a safe space to talk to and is funded, I suppose, by the organisation as well. Um, And yeah, the last one on that is my work at the moment with uh, University of New South Wales um, in Sydney, Australia. So they've created an LGBT champions. So they bring different champions, LGBT people from different departments in the university. And these are the people who know in-house the departmental knowledge. They know what needs to be done. They know what needs to change. And they're working to promote and to drive significant cultural change around equity. Yes, you can have the leaders in the organization promoting LGBT, but also it's good to have you know, someone in a localised department to be able to drive change. It's so nice to hear that there are, you know, initiatives like this that are being taken up to help people feel safer and, you know, for the inclusion of LGBTQ plus people. So um, my next question is, how do you deal with scientific or, you know, factual papers, you know, factual and quotes, work, etc., that is discriminatory towards LGBTQ plus people. For example, if a paper cites older men are attracted to younger women, um, this completely ignores the minority of LGBTQ plus people, yet facts like these are commonly cited anyway. 
So therefore, how do you remind the writer to state that not everyone fits this generalization? How do you correct it and, you know, resolve it? Yeah, um, so I, I think it, it's important for, so if I write that, it's important, I think, for me to kind of take time to see how I'm going to approach the situation. And it's important for me to kind of educate myself as well um, to see what's the best approach in the situation. And it's also important to remember that, you know, most people don't mean to say the wrong things, but mm -hmm. it's always due to a lack of education. So informing the person about their limiting view is perfectly okay to do and it should be done. And that's our responsibility to see something that we know isn't right and that we should change. So it's important for us to take the actions to do so. But you always have to remember that not everyone is receptive to the feedback and not everyone is is going to be okay, um, you know, with you, you questioning their assumptions. I okay. would say that most people are going to be fine. Um, but that's why, you know, I mentioned about the training sessions at work. These are generally actually mandatory. So most people are, you know, it's a part of their work ethic to be able to complete a certain amount of training sessions. Um, and one of those is for diversity and inclusion. So I think those type of sessions are actually important for individuals, writers, academics, um, practitioners to be able to help them change their perceptions on their own. However, next I would, I would, you know, explain to the author that, look, here's what you said. This has implications for a young person reading this. Um, they, you know, you're encouraging the idea that there's only one idea for a relationship, a man and a woman. Um, but I'd also say that, you know, for an employee reading something like that, the author has a role in society to conduct work and that's aligned with their diversity and inclusion. So therefore, they need to be readily, you know, willing to learn and move on and edit the article and make conscious effort for the next time. But I think it's it's how you communicate with the person. I would encourage you to say, look, this is, you know, what you wrote in your, your article, your, your scientific journal. This is damaging for these three reasons. Explain what they can do, because I probably know more of than them at that stage encourage them what to do and then it's really up to them um in the end so i suppose for someone to not understand diversity and inclusion and for someone to you know maybe say something that doesn't align with that it's not one single thing that has led to someone not becoming knowledgeable in the area of diversity and inclusion it is a series of failures from school it could be family work practices the government's um so that's that's the job of advocacy groups and lgbt colleagues to just inform them look that's that's probably not okay to say here's why and here's what you can do to to change it right um i agree with the fact that advocacy groups and initiatives like they can um spread awareness about the lgbtq community and maybe just suggest um, the problem. But again, the author's assumption is their own assumption. It is um, their choice to um, make the changes if they want to. And yeah, all right. So that, that about wraps up the questions we have for today. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Merit. We're really, we really appreciate hearing you discuss such important topics regarding inclusion and diversity um, within, within this particular field of interest. Thank you so much.
Be sure to check out the LGBTQ plus STEM podcast on Instagram and listen to their episodes. The link is provided in the description. Also support us by rating this episode and following us on Instagram. Thank you for listening and stay safe.